Best ever listeners, this episode has some noise in the background. It is me typing while I am taking notes. My bad. Apologize for that. We fixed it. It happened in 40 episodes, and then we resolved the issue. Too many, I know, but sorry. It's over with. We resolved it. I hope you can power through it and listen to the good stuff that the guest has to say. So talk about your business. Talk about the people, which is probably one of the most important things anyway. Talk about your team. Talk about what you do. Don't talk about the type of returns that you anticipate giving investors. And I would probably be staying away from talking about prior deals. Best Ever listeners, we have launched bestevercauses.com. That's bestevercauses.com. We profile a nonprofit or a cause that is near and dear to our heart, get the word out about their cause, and also donate money towards their cause. If you'd like to, one, learn more about the causes that we're profiling, we do one a month, then go to bestevercauses.com. And if you want to suggest a cause that we profile that is near and dear to your heart, then go to bestevercauses.com and there's a little form at the bottom of the page where you can submit one and we'll check it out. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff. And first off, I hope you're having a best ever weekend because today is Sunday. We got a special segment for you called Skill Set Sunday, like we usually do. And with Skill Set Sunday, you're going to come away with a specific skill that you either didn't have before or that can be honed based on our guest's expertise. And our guest's expertise is securities and specifically helping counsel real estate syndicators. How you doing, Mauricio Raul? I'm doing great, Joe. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Nice to have you on the show, my friend. And a little bit about Mauricio. He is the founder of Premier Law Group. And he specializes in counsel to real estate syndicators. He's nationally recognized expert on syndication. I've seen him be included in a whole bunch of conferences, and I've heard a lot of good things. Mauricio, this first time you and I have had a chance to connect, but I've heard a lot of good things about you and looking forward to our conversation. Well, I appreciate that, and that's uh, same with you. How about a little bit about your background, just for some context, and then we'll get into three things that we should know prior to doing a syndication. Yeah, so I founded Premier Law Group about 12 years ago now, and currently all we do right now is real estate syndications. That's what we do 100% of our time, specifically primarily Reg D offerings. But I started my career now almost 18 years ago, worked at a law firm that specialized in litigation and specifically securities litigation. So I was kind of on the other side of the table. I would represent sort of the big brokerage houses, JP Morgan, Prudential, Schwab, kind of all these litigations. So I did that for a while, but realized that's not really what I wanted to do, even though it was a great law firm. So I went off and uh, worked in-house a little bit for the real estate guys who do a lot of real estate syndications. And so I did all of their work. And then kind of from there, spun off my own law firm and started helping some of their guys. And that's kind of grown and blossomed now. It's been 10 years since I've been doing it on my own and just really happy to be able to sort of travel the country and sometimes the world sort of teaching real estate investors how to scale their businesses and how to get to the next level via syndications and raising private capital. And on that note, raising private capital and scaling our business, what are some things that we should know prior to doing that? Yeah. The first thing we always have to think about is whether we're even dealing with a security. Because a lot of people, it's kind of one of the big misnomers. Some people think 
hey, if I structure my real estate deal this way or that way, somehow we can get around the securities laws. And a lot of people don't realize that they're actually involved in issuing securities when they don't think so. And so what I tell people, kind of like my little cheat sheet that I give people is like, look, anytime you're taking people's money where the returns are generated primarily from your efforts, then you're dealing with a security. So it doesn't matter if it's a TIC arrangement, a promissory note, joint venture, profit sharing agreements, handshakes, high fives, whatever you want to call it. The actual structure doesn't matter. If you're taking people's money, you're generating the return, it's a security. If your investors are simply passive and cutting you a check. So that's kind of probably the the first most important thing to realize because a lot of people out there, I think, are raising money illegally because they think, hey, I'm not doing an LLC. I'm not doing a company. I've got some creative mechanism that I've come up with and, and I can get around the securities laws. And that's obviously not true. I love that you're mentioning this because I interview a lot of people who, if I stop to mention this during all the interviews I do, we would be talking about this for half the conversation for probably a large percentage of the people I interview. So let me ask you some examples. One, if I'm a fix and flipper and I need money to fund a fix and flip and I reach out to my uncle's best friend and she says yes – I'll fund your fix and flip. Here's $100,000. Just pay me 12% and maybe 10% of the upside after it's sold. Is that a security? You know, we can probably structure that as not being a security. Again, if they're simply passive, right? If they write you a check and go home, then it's going to be a security. So it depends on how we structure that particular one. If you have a note that's actually less than nine months, that's by definition not a security. So when you're doing a fix and flip, if you're talking to just one person and you get one investor and you do a note for less than nine months, that's not going to be a security. Or if you even have any kind of structure and you make that person active, again, it's all about whether your investor is an active participant or a passive. So if they're active and they're co-managing the LLC, they're co-managing the project, they're involved with you, then we can get away with not calling it a security. But to the extent they're just writing you a check and going home, even with one person, that's going to be considered a security if they're just passive. I'd never heard of the nine-month thing, so thank you for mentioning that. That's the first time I've heard that mentioned. And Joe, you've got to be careful with the nine-month. Again, the specific example was one person. So if I pick up the phone and call my buddy Joe or in your scenario, somebody's uncle, and don't do any of the marketing and we do an eight-month note, that's going to be fine. The challenge is going to be a lot of people want to go out there and market their deal to their list or reach out to many people. In that case, we can get into issues. It's not only a note, but it can be called what's called an investment contract, which is, again, a type of structure that can be considered a security. Got it. So if I'm a fix and flipper and I have a fix and flip, which generally they don't take more than nine months, knock on wood, then what I could do is I could find an investor that I have a relationship with or I know someone who knows them. I could reach out to that person, not put it on Facebook, but just kind of reach out directly to individuals and say, here's what I'm working on. I'm offering 12% on your money and I'll give you 10% of the upside. You will be active, but your role is going to be very minimal in the deal. Well, if you're going the active route, they've got to be active. So we're going to make these guys active. Let's make them active. What I'm suggesting is if you have one person identify that you just pick up the phone and call them or have a meeting with them and have them invest with a nine-month note or less, you're going to be fine. But if you send out a blast to your investor database saying, hey, I'm looking for one individual to do a loan for me, that's probably going to be considered an investment contract because you're marketing it to more than one person. So the promissory notes are very tricky, so you really need to speak with experienced counsel when it comes to promissory notes because even the case law out there on promissory notes essentially boils down to 
if the promissory note looks like a security, acts like a security, and, and quacks like a security, it's probably a security. So there's not a great deal of guidance on that. But certainly if it's a nine months and you just picked up the phone with one person, I think you should be fine. Okay. Then really the question becomes, what is active? Right. And when I do an active deal, I want them to be co-managers of the LLC and I want them to be involved in the decision. So again, they can't just write you a check and go home because if you're generating the return, then that's going to be a passive investor. So they've got to be involved in the flip. You guys have to make joint decisions from hiring the contractor and getting the project done. You guys want to be both almost like you're starting a business as opposed to just having a passive investment. Okay. And then one slight variation to this scenario, then we'll move on. I have a pre-existing relationship with someone. I'm doing the fix and flip eight months. I reach out to that one person and I say, do you want 12% on your money? You get 10% on the upside when we sell and you're going to be completely passive. Is that a security? If it's less than nine months, it's not going to be considered a security. Got it. So they can be completely passive and it's not considered a security if it's less than nine months. Correct. What if that project extends unexpectedly from eight months to 10 months? Well, you can't extend it. You're basically at that point in breach of your note and you've got to proceed with the consequences of the breach. And so whatever the the event of defaults are in there, you you don't want to be extending it at that point because then you're running to the risk that you've got to prove now that you didn't intend from day one to really make it a 10, 11, 12 months. And that's why it gets tricky with the promissory notes. Cool. All right. Well, you're welcome, fix and flippers. I don't fix and flip, but uh, we have a lot of fix and flippers. So we'll move on to number two. But to summarize, if you have a pre-existing relationship with someone and it's less than eight months and they're passive, then that is okay to do. Yeah. And I'll put for your show notes, I'll get you the sort of the statute that shows you that the promissory note that's less than nine months is not considered a security. Again, the note may be considered an investment contract, which is a security. And that's where it gets a little bit complicated. Number two. Number two, let's talk about once we've identified that you're dealing with a security, then I always tell people there's really only three things we need to worry about. Number one, we need to register that security with the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC. Or number two, we have to find an exemption to registration. Or number three, it's illegal. Those are really the three things. You either have to register your security, you have to find an exemption, or it's illegal. Usually I go with the assumption that you're not in the business of doing an illegal offering, but illegal doesn't necessarily just mean you're committing fraud and, and you're, you're trying to defraud your investors. Obviously nobody's, at least in your world, nobody's trying to do that. But illegal offerings can be as simple as omissions, failing to put some disclosures in your documentation. It could include things like over-promising on your returns. If you suddenly tell people, hey, look, I'm, I'm promising you a 30% return, it just seems kind of a, they call it kind of a blue sky representation. It's kind of out there. So anything that breaches the security laws in that sense would be illegal. You never really want to register your security. The reason being that it usually takes a couple years to do. I mean, you're dealing with the federal government, so it takes a while to get it through the process. And it usually takes six or seven figures to get that through the process. And so if you're an investor and you're in contract to, to take down an apartment complex, for example, you, know, you just don't have a year or two years to wait for the SEC to approve your syndication. So typically we look for an exemption. And that's really where I live. That's what I do 100% of my time is finding the appropriate exemption to the registration. And fortunately for us, There's a couple of exemptions that about 95% of the people use because they're popular and they have a particular function, which I'll go into. And that's probably the ones that you've heard of before, Joe, which are these Reg D offerings, uh, specifically rules 506B and 506C. Those are probably, not probably, they are, according to the SEC, the most popular exemptions. And the reason for that is quite simple. Number one, they provide us with what's called a safe harbor. 
which means if we comply with all of the rules of 506B or 506C, then we're assured that we've complied with the exemption and we're clear. Other exemptions don't have that safe harbor, and so we have to start making arguments and we have to convince a regulator that we, we comply. But if with these 506 exemptions, if we hit these five or six items, then we're good to go. And then the other big deal with these is that they preempt state law, which is just a fancy way of saying we don't have to worry about the state laws as they pertain to the registration of the securities laws. We still have to worry about anti-fraud provisions, so we still can't obviously commit fraud, and that's what the states really are focusing on right now. But we don't have to go and hire an attorney in every single state and, and make sure that we're complying with the securities laws of that particular state because the federal rules will preempt the state law. So that's primarily why these two exemptions are the most popular out there. You said they provide a safe harbor if we complied with them and are in the clear on five or six items. What are those five or six items? Well, let's go through them. The first for both of these is that you can raise an unlimited amount of money, which is one of the reasons you'll see a lot of these even huge brokerage firms like Charles Schwab's The World and the Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan. They sometimes raise billions of dollars under this 506 rule because you can raise an unlimited amount of money. So that's a nice thing. Number two, on 506B you are allowed to accept a limited number of non-accredited investors and so that we don't leave anybody behind. An accredited investor is essentially anyone who has a net worth of a million dollars or more, excluding their primary residence, or earned $200,000 a year in the last couple of years with a reasonable expectation of earning that amount this year. So a lot of first-time syndicators tend to go out to their friends, their family, people in their network, and a lot of them tend to be non-accredited. So 506B allows us to take up to 35 non-accredited investors as long as they are sophisticated. 506C does not allow us to take any accredited investors, and there's a reason for that, which we'll get into next. The limitation on 506B is that we are prohibited from advertising or generally soliciting. So we have to essentially stick to people that we have a pre-existing relationship with, a substantive pre-existing relationship. With a 506C, we're actually allowed to advertise. Really, the 506C was kind of the, the new rule that came out and implemented in September of 2013 that lifted that prohibition of advertising. And so now it is possible to go out. If you want to put an ad in the Super Bowl, you know, knock yourself out. You want to do a podcast, a radio show, a webinar, a Facebook ads, you can do that under 506C. But again, your limitation on 506C is you cannot take any non-accredited investors. All of your investors must be accredited. And furthermore, you must take what's called reasonable steps to verify that your investors are accredited. That's not a requirement in 506B. And in 506B, which is the old rule, which still is in existence today, and actually still way more popular than 506C, we can rely on their representation. We prepare a questionnaire. It's basically a check the box. They tell you they're accredited or non-accredited. You can rely on that representation. But when we're talking about 506C, where you're allowed to advertise, we cannot rely on check-the-box verification. We must take what's called reasonable steps to verify, which generally means looking at tax returns. If you're claiming that you're earning more than $200,000, you are looking at either a W-2, a 1099, some kind of your tax forms. And there are other ways to do it as well, but that's what I think most people rely on in terms of verifying your investors. Either one of these, you cannot accept what's called bad actors as sponsors. So if you partner with someone who's had some kind of a history of a violation or sort of a slap on the wrist of some securities violation or something to that effect, you will either be prohibited from being a sponsor in that deal or if it happened back before 2013, you have to disclose that. And uh, I think those are kind of the main ones. Okay. Not to take this off track because I do want to continue on one and two, but one question that I get a lot is if I don't have a deal, 
what can I say and can I say about my business? Great question. So if you don't have a deal, it's not impossible, but it's hard to really make an offer because when you have a security, you make an offer sale. But if you don't have a deal, it's hard to make an offer unless you're what's called conditioning the market. So you can definitely talk about your company, what they do, the kind of investments that your company invests in. What you want to avoid a little bit is talking too much about your prior returns and also just, hey, you know, this is what we do. We invest in multifamily and we tend to give investors a 10% return. That's the stuff you want to avoid because it's called conditioning the market, which is very similar to making an offer. So talk about your business, talk about the people, which is probably one of the most important things anyway. Talk about your team, talk about what you do. Don't talk about the type of returns that you anticipate giving investors. And I would probably be staying away from talking about prior deals because again, it might be viewed, this is the type of deals we're doing in the future. And these are kind of the returns we would, we'd be expecting to give you, which is conditioning the market. Well, does that mean you should not have case studies in your company presentation? Oh, no. Case studies are fine. What you want to stay away from is showing people what the returns were for your investors. So if you want to say, hey, I'm in the business of investing in multifamily. And again, when you say case study, I presume that means something that you haven't done as sort of an example. No, no, sorry, sorry. No, let me clarify. Case study meaning a property that that company has done previously and the results of that from, I was thinking, return standpoint plus just overall business plan that was implemented successfully. Yeah, I would stick to the business plan that was implemented successfully. Hey, we bought this building at X. We spent X amount of money on CapEx. We increased the occupancy. We increased the rents. It was a very successful execution of the plan. What I would stay away from was, hey, if you invested $100,000 in that deal, you would have made a 12% cash on cash and and then a 13% IRR or whatever, because that could be viewed as conditioning the market. So that was number one, is it a security? Number two, well, if it is, then we need to register the security, find an exemption, or just do something illegal. (laughs) So either register the security or find an exemption. And anything else on two? I think the one thing I, I think I mentioned it, but just kind of tie it all together in both 506B and 506C, they do preempt state law. So we don't have to worry about the states too much regarding the securities laws, but the states get a little bit neglected because think about it, the states, their powers have been stripped quite a bit with these new rules. So I kind of joke around that they're kind of sitting around twiddling their thumbs. They don't really have too much to do over at the state side. So when they do get something, when there is some kind of an impropriety or somebody that's claiming some kind of fraud, they tend to jump all over it. So really, the states are really what we're usually worried about when it comes to securities violations. I'm not saying it never happens, but it's very rare for the SEC itself at the federal level to get involved with these. Most people are raising a million, two million dollars. I mean, that's not where the SEC plays. They're looking for the Bernie Madoffs. They're looking for the Ponzi schemes. They're looking for people who are out there intentionally defrauding investors. If you fail to disclose something, if you get too carried away with some of your projections, it's the states that are really going to jump on you because that's the only thing they have left to hang on to is these anti-fraud provisions. So if there's a complaint, it's probably going to be a complaint to your state regulator, and it's probably going to be a call that you're going to receive from the state regulator versus the SEC. Because like I said, I think they're just a little bit bored over there because they've got most of their power stripped away from them. So let's say you get that phone call from a state regulator. What happens? I've gotten those a few times. I'm happy to say we've passed those with flying colors. But the first thing a state regulator is going to ask you is for all of your disclosure documents that you provided in this particular deal that's at issue, and then most likely all of the prior deals as well. So we got a little bit ahead of ourselves, but once we pick this exemption, what we typically do is we provide the investors with all of these disclosure documents, which typically include a private placement memorandum, which is some people call it a PPM, 
which is just where we put all of the disclosures and all the ways that the investors can lose their money. They have an operating agreement that the members are going to be, the investors are going to be a member of. We have subscription agreements. We have investor questionnaires and obviously the business plan. So when a regulator calls, that's the first thing they're going to ask for. It's really powerful when you're able to send over to the state regulator a package of 150 pages or however long your, your, your disclosure documents are, along with all the signature pages that you've got all your I's dotted and T's crossed. Typically, in my experience, at least the, the ones that I've gone through, once we've provided them with all the documentation, they realize that this is not really low-hanging fruit for them, that we've actually done our work properly, that had sophisticated counsel, and they kind of move on. What they're looking for, and I've had this on the other side of the equation, is they ask for all the documentation and, and they literally get two or three pieces of paper because they didn't really have any of the disclosure documents or they had a really two-page business plan and that was it. Or one of those scenarios we talked about earlier, which the person didn't think they were dealing with the security, so they didn't really worry about any of that stuff. That's where the securities regulators get all excited because now they've got kind of low-hanging fruit and it's something easy for them to go after. What's the investment into the legal documents so that everything is registered properly and disclosed properly? When you say the investment, you, how much does it cost? I think of it as an investment in peace of mind. How much does it cost? Yeah, yeah. I usually recommend putting a line item in your budget because all of this is obviously reimbursed at the time of the close. But I usually put about $15,000 for what I call legal and compliance. And that's a combination of the attorney fees and also the state filing fee. So one of the things we have to do at the conclusion of the raise is we file with the states a notice filing. We file with the SEC what's called a Form D, which is just a, a form that kind of just tells the SEC, hey, look, I've, I've just raised a million bucks from five non-accredited investors or 10 non-accredited, kind of just kind of basic information. And then we file a copy of that with the states. And each states, what they're really looking for is their, their fee, right? So each state charges anywhere from a couple hundred dollars to $500 for that filing. So depending on how many states you have in there, it will cost you another, you know, probably another fifteen dollars to $2,500 in, in filing fees. So I always recommend putting 15000 in the budget for sort of a standard real estate syndication. And just to make sure we clarify, that's specifically for the securities aspect of the deal. That's not the real estate attorney who's working on the contract and other items. That's a great distinction. This is for the securities attorney. You will typically have a securities attorney who's dealing with, again, all the securities work and the drafting the PPM and all the disclosure documents. You might have a real estate attorney who's actually handling the purchase and sale agreement, that's handling the loan, that's handling the financing part. And you may even have other, if you're doing a 1031 exchange, you might be even handling with a 1031 expert and you may even have a tax attorney. So there's numerous attorneys. I'm specifically focused on the securities compliance part, the legal and compliance. And what's number three? Well, number three, I think, I guess the next step is once we've identified what exemption, let's say we're going to go with a 506B because we don't intend to advertise, we have pre-existing relationships with everyone, then we go into actually drafting all the documentation. So the, the private placement memorandum, PPM, is probably the most important one of those. Joe, I'm sure you've gone in for surgery before, and I, I just had my wisdom teeth taken out a few years ago. And, you know, you go under for about 30 seconds to get those things off. And they give you that medical consent form, right? That yellow piece of paper yep. that tells you all the ways that this surgery can go wrong, including death. I can die from getting my wisdom teeth out. Obviously, the chances of you dying are slim, but it's in that paper. You sign off on that, and that's the medical consent form. It's very similar on the security side. The PPM, just all of the risks, all the ways you can lose your money, all the ways that this deal can go south gets put into that documentation. So it's a little bit of a scary document for some. You almost have to oversell your deal on the front end with your business plan and your conversations with the investors 
because no one's going to invest in your deal based on the PPM. If anything, it's going to scare them off a little bit. So just you have, almost have to oversell your deal so that when they read the PPM, they get a little bit concerned, but they're still good to go because you've done such a good job on the front end. Number one, is it a security? Number two, we need to register it or find an exemption. And number three is make sure what all the documentation is in order or? Yeah, I call them the offering documents. Uh, some people call it different things, but the offering documents, which are composed of a, a PPM, which has the disclosures, the operating agreement, which will be where all of your terms and conditions of the deal will be included. So what are the splits with the investors? Are you giving them preferred returns? What are the voting rights? What if somebody wants to get out? All that information gets put into the operating agreement because your investors, remember, are going to be a passive investor. They're going to be an owner, a part owner of your LLC or LP or whatever the structure you're using. So they've obviously the Operating agreement's important. There's a subscription agreement, which is the document that actually the investors actually signs and puts in how much money they're investing. And, and that's kind of the document that actually triggers the investment. And then there's a investor questionnaire, which if you're doing a 506B and it's check the box, we have several questions for the investors so that we can find out their level of sophistication. We can find out what their net worth is, make sure they're accredited. And if they're not accredited, we just keep track of it so we don't go over 35. If it's a 506C deal, we also do a questionnaire, but I typically recommend, it's such a compliance nightmare, I usually recommend outsourcing the verification process. There's numerous companies out there that will verify your investors and make sure they're accredited for a very reasonable price, somewhere around 80 to to $100 per investor. And so you can just add that to your budget. And then that way, if you're doing a 506C, that means you're advertising. That means you have some investors you've never met before. It's just not a great thing where you're asking this new person for their financials and their tax returns and their property appraisals or their brokerage accounts. I mean, that's just not something you want to be involved with. So these third-party companies, they deal with that. They go gather the information. And then you get what's called a deliverable from that company that says, hey, we've done our job. We've done the verification. And this person is, in fact, an accredited investor. Mauricio, how can the best ever listeners get in touch with you? Best way to get in touch with me, actually, I've got a report, which is the eight critical steps to practicing safe syndications. If you email me at team at premierlawgroup.net, again, team at premierlawgroup.net, and just put the word fearless on the subject line, I'll make sure you get that, and we can then start a conversation. Wonderful. And our team member, Grant, already has that in the show notes, so I can see it right here. It will definitely be in the show notes whenever we publish this episode. Thank you so much for being on the show and educating us on securities as it relates to syndication. The three steps, one is the security, two, we need to register it or find an exemption, and three is to draft the documentation. And typically we do the exemption, which it tends to be Reg D-506B or Reg D-506C as in CAT. There's some things that we talked about for fix and flippers and others in that scenario. If you have a relationship with one person, and they're passive, and it's less than nine months, it's okay. It's not a security. And a couple things that we also talked about, allocate about 15K for legal and compliance as a line item in your budget if it is a security. And also, when you don't have a deal, it's okay to talk about your business, about what you do, but there's a phrase, conditioning the market, that you want to be careful about where you're talking about what type of returns that you've done in the past. So thanks for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day, and we'll talk to you soon. Best ever listeners, we have launched bestevercauses.com. That's bestevercauses.com. We profile a nonprofit or a cause that is near and dear to our heart, get the word out about their cause, and also donate money towards their cause. If you'd like to 
one, learn more about the causes that we're profiling. We do one a month. Then go to bestevercauses.com. And if you want to suggest a cause that we profile that is near and dear to your heart, then go to bestevercauses.com. And there's a little form at the bottom of the page where you can submit one and we'll check it out. Have you heard about the latest podcast for entrepreneurs called Tough Decisions? Listen to Dan and Danae Hanford as they interview successful people from around the world about tough decisions as entrepreneurs. Visit toughdecisions.net and be sure to subscribe to their free weekly entrepreneurial email. That's toughdecisions.net.